0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
2: In Our Time is on its annual break and we'll be back on BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds on the 14th of September. Until then, each week we're offering an episode from our archive of nearly 1,000 programmes, which I hope you'll enjoy. Have a good summer. Hello, across the universe, stars have been dying for billions of years, some in enormous explosions, some expanding, then deflating, and others quietly sputtering out. Those like our own star, the sun, become red giants, sprawling outwards only to collapse into white dwarfs. The massive stars, many times the mass of the sun, burst into supernovas visible in daytime. And every element in our bodies, every planet, was made in one of those stars, either as they burned or as they exploded. We we'll me to discuss the death of stars. are Martin Rees, Astronomer Royal, Fellow of Trinity College and Emeritus Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics at the University of Cambridge. Mark Sullivan, Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Southampton, and Carolyn Crawford, Emeritus Member of the Institute of Astronomy and Emeritus Fellow of Emmanuel College, University of Cambridge. Carolyn Crawford, what is a star?
1: Stars form from diffuse clouds of gas that lie in interstellar space between the stars, and they form because of gravity you have all the hydrogen atoms within these clouds start falling together under their mutual self-gravitation. And so parts of the cloud collapse down under gravity to become denser. And as they become denser, they compress, they become hotter. You have a runaway gravitational collapse until a point that portions of those clouds reach temperatures in excess of 15 million degrees, very high densities. And at that point you can initiate nuclear fusion. And this is a simple idea of what stars are. You need to sustain nuclear fusion to counteract the gravitational attraction. And when you have the two in balance, you have a star. Now, that's a very simplified version of what's going on. Nuclear fusion is when you combine nuclei of elements to form heavier elements. And when you do this, there's a loss of mass, which is converted to energy, which provides a thermal pressure. And that is what counteracts the gravity and stalls the gravitational collapse. So, for example, our sun burns hydrogen, turning it to helium in a series of nuclear reactions, where you start up with four protons and you end up with a helium nucleus and some uh, subatomic particles. It releases energy and that holds the star in place. So it exists as a star as long as you have this balance, this quite fragile balance between gravity and thermal pressure at the core. The nuclear fusion doesn't happen throughout the whole star. It can only happen where it's very hot and matter's very dense. First of all, it needs to be dense so that you have a higher probability of collisions occurring and the reactions taking place. And they need to be hot so all the particles have enough energy to smash into each other. So like the protons overcome their natural Um, electrical repulsion and still combine so you only have nuclear fusion going on in the core so essentially a star's life it can exist as a star for as long as it has enough fuel at the right temperature the right density in the core of the star to stall the gravitational collapse and it's when it runs out of its fuel at the core that's when you reach the end of its lifetime and we start going through the death processes.
2: Can I go back to what you said at the very beginning? It came out of clouds. Can you say a bit more about that, the stars? So, Is this what's drifting around in the universe before there's anything there?
1: Well, this is even in our current galaxy. Between stars, it's not truly a vacuum. They're very diffuse clouds of cold hydrogen atoms and molecules. And a lot of this collapse early on into stars, so when galaxies were young, but there's still star formation going on from these diffuse interstellar clouds.
2: Why is the mass of a star so important?
1: The mass of the star is important because with you have more mass, you've got more gravitational attraction, and so the core <laughs> of the star gets squeezed more. If you squeeze matter, it heats up and it becomes denser. This means that more massive stars can initiate a more complicated series of nuclear reactions and they can go on and build quite heavy elements at their cause through their lifetimes. And secondly, they have to produce more energy to overcome that greater gravity. And so even though they're more massive to begin with, they actually have shorter lifetimes. It's counterintuitive, but they have to chomp through their fuel supply so furiously that they exhaust it more rapidly. So the mass of the star dictates... What happens in the core, what you create in the core, and it also determines the lifetime of the star. So if a star like our sun, we reckon it's about 5 billion, so that's 5,000 million years old. It's depleted about half of its fuel in the core. So we reckon it's about halfway through its lifetime. So stars like the sun have lifetimes of 10 billion years or so. More massive stars, when you get to 10, 20, 30 times the mass of our sun, they have well, this is an astronomer speaking. When I say a short lifetime, I mean it's only tens or hundreds of millions of years, but a lot less than our sun.
2: Martin Reese, this has been alluded to, but how will the sun come to an end?
0: Well, as Carolyn said, it will run out of hydrogen fuel in its centre and it will then uh, go on contracting in its core. Um, But for slightly complicated reasons, that blows off the outer layers. So what will happen is that it will blow off its outer layers and become a red giant, expanding, so it would engulf the inner planets. But then the core will settle down to what's called a white dwarf. This is a dead, dense star, about a million times denser than ordinary stuff. And there are many white dwarfs we see in our galaxy, which are the remnants of stars rather like the sun. And I should mention that, uh, to add to what Carolyn said, um, we can test our theories, not only because we understand the physics, but because we can look at lots of stars. It's rather like if you had never seen a tree before and you wandered around in a forest for a day, you could infer the life cycle of trees. You'd see saplings and big trees, etc. And so even though our lifetime is minuscule compared to the lifetime of a stable star, uh, we can infer the population and life cycles of stars observationally, and the theory does corroborate that fairly well.
2: I was going to ask that. So you really do know it's got about it's got half its life has been
0: spent, the Sun? Uh, we, we do, and of course to digress a bit, if we go back to the 19th century, there was a big puzzle about uh, how stars lasted so long because Darwin and the geologists already realised that uh, the Earth had been around for at least tens of millions of years and... At that time, it was unclear what the source of power was to keep stars shining for even that length. It was a big paradox, and uh, the famous scientist Lord Kelvin made a big deal about this, and he said it needs some completely unknown source of energy. And it wasn't until the 20th century that nuclear energy was discovered, and that indeed is more than enough, fusing hydrogen to helium, to make the sun go on shining for 10 billion years or so. So that solved what was a problem recognized in the 19th century. Is the sun recycled from previous dead stars? Yes, it is, because um, we believe that the pristine material in the universe was mainly just hydrogen and helium, and all the atoms we are made of were not there soon after the Big Bang. They were all made in stars uh, which lived and died before our solar system formed. And this leads to the problem of uh, trying to understand more massive stars which have more complicated lives and give rise to supernovae, which uh, Mark is an expert on, uh, because these stars which are heavier than the sun, they ten times as heavy, uh, they will, as Carolyn said, they'll go on contracting when they run out of hydrogen fuel and they get hot enough to turn helium into carbon, then carbon into oxygen, and then eventually things into iron and other elements. And so when those big stars face a crisis, they blow off the outer layers, which already contain all this mix. And uh, the cloud from which our solar system formed was already contaminated by the debris from earlier generations of massive stars, which had lived and died more than, say, 5 billion years ago. So we're literally the ashes of those long-dead stars, or if you're less romantic, we're the nuclear waste. And the fuel that kept those old stars shining.
2: Well, that certainly brings you down to us, Martin. <laughs> so
0: we four around here are right. n- mm-hmm.
2: inheritors w- in- of nuclear waste. Indeed, yes. I've been here because of nuclear waste. Well, that's a thought. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, uh, Martin mentioned white dwarfs. Can you tell us what the Chandrasekhar limit is
3: and how that applies to white dwarfs? So the Chandrasekhar limit is the maximum mass that a white dwarf star can have. as has been described already, white dwarf stars are extraordinary objects because they're incredibly dense. So you've taken something of the mass of the sun, say, and compressed it down to something of the volume of the Earth. But nonetheless, all stars have the problem of supporting themselves against gravitational collapse, whether that's a star like our sun, which is burning hydrogen into helium and thus providing lots of thermal pressure to stop collapse, or whether it's a white dwarf star, but it doesn't have any hydrogen to burn because it's an old dead star fading away. So it has another method to stop itself collapsing. And that is called degeneracy pressure. So although a white dwarf is is very dense, gravity is still trying to pull that white dwarf to be even denser and even denser. And when you get to the densities of a white dwarf, there's a fundamental limit as to how close together you can pack electrons, which are subatomic particles. Now, those electrons can't be in the same place with the same energy in quantum physics. And so as you try to compress them together, that creates an outward pressure that stops the star from collapsing any further. That's called electron degeneracy pressure, and it gives a maximum mass that a white dwarf can have. Because when it reaches that Chandrasekhar mass even that electron degeneracy pressure is no longer sufficient to support the star from collapse. So we're back to what we said at the beginning by Caroline, there's got to be this balance. Yes, exactly. It's exactly the same. Only in the white dwarf stars, it's a different physical effect than in stars like the Sun. What happens to these white dwarfs when they explode? Yes, yeah, so the Chandrasekhar mass sets an upper mass limit to a white dwarf. And if uh, a white dwarf somehow exceeded that mass, that that Chandrasekhar mass, it will collapse into a a neutron star. Now, this doesn't happen spontaneously to stars because stars can't magically grow in mass and a star like our sun will never grow in mass because it lives by itself in space. But most stars in the universe don't live by themselves. They live in what are called binary systems where you have two stars orbiting each other rather than just a single star that we have as the sun. They're probably born with different masses And so they evolve at different speeds and one will become a white dwarf. Now, the physics is a bit complicated, but what can happen is that that white dwarf can steal material from its companion star. And so mass gets transferred from the star that might be like our sun onto the surface of the white dwarf. And that can cause the white dwarf to grow in mass. Now, it never quite reaches the Chandrasekhar mass, because what happens is as, as the white dwarf's mass grows larger and larger, The white dwarf is made of carbon, it's made of oxygen, and the temperature and the pressure in the centre of that white dwarf star can become so extreme that carbon detonation can occur in the centre of the white dwarf. And that is a runaway thermonuclear reaction. That carbon burns, in in astronomer speak, into more massive elements. And in one or two seconds, the entirety of the white dwarf star can be disrupted. So you're thinking of something the size of the Earth, the mass of the Sun instantaneously or near instantaneously exploding and so that's an extremely violent cosmic event but even that is something even more remarkable is that we probably might not know about those types of explosions were it not for the fact that during all that carbon burning in the white dwarf star luckily for us to observe them it makes something called nickel 56 and nickel 56 is what's called an iron peak element so it lives with iron and cobalt on the periodic table and it 's radioactive and so in, a, in one of these thermonuclear explosions, you make vast quantities of this nickel fifty six it 's radioactive and over the course of a few weeks, it decays, it gives off gamma rays, which are just the electromagnetic radiation, it gives off positrons, which are anti electrons, and they get absorbed in the now rapidly expa- expanding remnants of the star and they heat the remnants of the star up to be very, very hot, tens of thousands of kelvin. And they make it glow very bright. And it's that is what we see in the supernova explosion. We see the radioactive aftermath of a white dwarf blowing up. We'd never see the explosion itself. That lasts about an hour in visible light. But the aftermath we see is, yeah, the radioactive uh, radioactive material decaying.
2: Carolyn, um, can we now look at these massive stars? What tips them towards the end of their lives?
1: Massive stars, and here I'm talking about. Can you about- tell
2: the listeners what- I mean, these numbers and these things are beyond most of us, frankly. What are you talking about when you say massive star?
1: By massive star, I'm saying something that's, say, 10 times the mass of our sun up to about 50 solar masses. That's the kind of mass range I'm talking about. And these will start the same way as stars like a sun, in that they will burn hydrogen to helium, and helium then go on to carbon and oxygen. Now, at that point... A solar mass star stops it becomes a white an inert white dwarf, but because of the greater weight of the outer layers, a very massive star will keep compressing the core and it can initiate another sequence of reactions. So you have a series of cycles in that the core of the star you deplete one fuel for one set of nuclear reactions. gravity temporarily wins compresses the core, heats it up, makes it more dense, and suddenly a new set of nuclear reactions are initiated using the products from the previous fusion reactions. And you have these cycles until, at the last moment, you're burning silicon to iron. And after that, iron marks the end point. You can't extract energy from any nuclear fusion reactions with iron because it's the most tightly bound nucleus. The other thing that's interesting is that the star would take a long time to burn helium, uh, hydrogen to helium and helium and so on. But with each set of reactions, you're getting less energy out. And so it goes through that fuel supply faster. It'll burn all the silicon to the core of iron in one of these massive stars in the space of a few days. So at the end, it's very rapid and you end up with this iron core. Now, this is where it gets interesting you can't have any more nuclear reactions. you still got the gravitational squeezing of that core and it gets squeezed down to phenomenally high densities of over a trillion kilograms per cubic metre and also temperatures of the order of 10 billion degrees. And it's still an iron core. that gets so hot, it's radiating really energetic gamma rays. And the amazing thing is that these energetic photons will then completely undo all those hundreds of millions of years of nuclear fusion by a process called photodisintegration, which literally means the photons disintegrate the iron and other nuclei into their constituent electrons and protons. And all of this happens in a matter of seconds. So by now, you've got the core of the star. So originally, that iron core would have been about the size of the Earth. It would have had you know, many more masses, solar masses, squeezed into a volume the size of the Earth, about 12,000 kilometres across. And under this pressure, it gets compressed down to about 10 or 20 kilometres across in a matter of seconds. So this is phenomenally fast shrinkage. And you get squeezed down until all those electrons and protons that were created from breaking apart the iron nuclei combine to form neutrons. And like Marcus described, with electrons not wanting to be squeezed, you have neutron degeneracy pressure. Neutrons don't like to be compressed at some point. They resist it. And at the point that you've got a ball of almost entirely neutrons, it resists the gravitational squeezing. It's another kind of pressure, but you've got that equilibrium again and you have what's known as a neutron star. So a very different end from a solar sized star. Martin,
2: is this the way we go to get black holes?
0: Yes, because uh, neutron stars can't exist above a certain mass. Just as uh, Mark said that white dwarfs can't be above the so-called Chandrasekhar mass, there's a maximum mass for a neutron star, which isn't quite so well known. It's about twice the mass of the Sun. So if a neutron star gets above that mass, then it'll compress even further, and will become a black hole. It'll go on contracting until it, as it were, cuts itself off from the rest of the universe, leaving a gravitational imprint frozen in the space it's left. It becomes a black hole that things can fall into, but not come out. Um, we, and the
2: black hole is a, is a fascinating phrase. We use it for all sorts of things. Can, okay. you, can you say a bit more yes. about it? Well, black well holes.
0: Let, let, let me start with uh, neutron stars again, because uh, neutron stars are extraordinarily extreme physics. They fascinate physicists because they allow us to study material under conditions we could never simulate in the lab, and we could learn a lot about physics from them. And uh, we have very good observations of neutron stars because they um, emit um, X-rays and gamma rays, and more remarkably, they spin round. And because they're so small, they can spin round at as much as a 1,000 revs per second without flying apart. And what are called pulsars are objects where you see one pulse per orbit. And uh, ever since the late 1960s, when these were discovered, these have been a way in which we can study spinning neutron stars and how they slow down and all that. So they're amazing physics. But a neutron star can't exist above a certain mass. And if you were on the surface of a neutron star and tried to fire a rocket, you'd have to fire it at about half the speed of light if it was to escape. But black holes are more extreme still because they are objects where the contraction has gone even further and where, as it were, the escape speed has become the speed of light itself, so not even light can escape. And black holes um, are the endpoint of the most massive stars. And again, um, they don't emit any light, um, but again, we can detect them uh, if they are in a binary pair with an ordinary star as Mark mentioned, and they can then um, grab some fuel from the companion and as it swirls in to the black hole, this material gets very, very hot and emits powerful radiation. And these are indicators of black holes, which are the endpoint of uh, the bigger stars.
2: To secular persons like myself, I'm already dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dizzy with admiration, though, and just about following. I'm holding onto the table with the tips, tips of I mean, my fingernails. Mark, um, you take a particular interest in supernovas. What would you like to add to what's been
3: said? And Martin gave an excellent description of neutron stars. There's one other very, well, exciting development, I think, in the study of neutron stars and their um, their fate. If you have a binary system which again is two stars together in space orbiting each other if they're both neutron stars then something very interesting can happen those neutron stars will be orbiting each other and as they do so because they're very massive and because they're moving very quickly they radiate gravitational wave radiation gravitational wave radiation are is undulations in the space-time continuum So it's not photons that we use for electromagnetic radiation. It's a completely new way of studying objects. And these rotating neutron stars give off a lot of this gravitational wave radiation. As the neutron stars orbit each other, the orbit loses energy because the gravitational wave radiation has um, taken energy away from the system. And the neutron stars get closer and closer and closer together. And eventually they merge with each other. Now, that can form a more massive neutron star. That could form a black hole. It depends on the masses of the objects involved. But the other thing it does is when neutron stars touch each other, there's a very energetic event. And you can get some very interesting nuclear synthesis, which is the formation of more massive elements. And in particular, we think these combining neutron stars are the main sites where heavy elements like strontium or plutonium, perhaps even gold or silver, these kinds of elements are made in the universe in these neutron stars combining with each other. Now, the interesting thing is that the actual optical emission, in other words, if we look with our eyes at the sky of these events, is really faint. There's none of this lovely nickel 56 which is made in the thermonuclear supernovae and which gives us a clue as to where the objects are. They're actually really faint on the sky. And so the best way to find them is using gravitational waves. They are very sensitive detectors on the Earth that can sense these very weak gravitational waves passing through the Earth.
2: What happens, Caroline, to all the matter thrown out uh, into the universe by the supernovas? How do they change the galaxy?
1: Supernovae particularly are of fundamental importance for the host galaxy. First of all, you are blasting a shockwave out through the local medium. And we've talked about what happens at the core of the star, collapses down to a neutron star or a black hole. What happens to the outer layers of the star is something a bit different because the core collapses down you've know, you got your iron core collapses down into gravity in less than a second that kind of leaves the outer layers of the star a little bit behind they crash down, bounce on the surface of the core and then there's a shockwave that propels all this stellar debris out into space so this is part of the supernova explosion we've been talking about and it carves out a bubble within the interstellar medium. And so you have the shockwave of the stellar debris, also the kind of heavy elements that are created within the explosion that Mark was alluding to. And these get sweep up the interstellar medium in front of them and they get thoroughly mixed in. So again, this is the idea of enrichment. You start off you know, with much more primordial hydrogen and helium gas that gets steadily peppered with all these heavy elements and the this chemical evolution within the galaxy due to these supernovae. I mean, not everything is recycled in this way. We've, we've told you how much of it is locked into the black holes and the white dwarfs and neutron stars. But a good fraction of the material of those massive stars gets mixed in with the local interstellar medium. And then what? Well, and then you maybe also get new star formation being triggered because these shock waves will compress the gas clouds. And as we started talking about, if you have slightly denser regions of the gas cloud, and we could have a gas cloud that's been sitting out in space for billions of years and hasn't bothered to contract because it's been too hot or it's too sparse. If you squeeze that... You make it denser, it's more liable to gravitational collapse and you trigger a next wave of star formation. But using gas that has been enriched with all these elements from the cause of stars and the supernova. So we see this. supernova don't happen in isolated places. We see clusters of young massive stars, some of which have gone supernova and have triggered new stars forming deep within the clouds surrounding them. So we observe subsequent generations of stars happening within a galaxy.
2: Martin, um, how is this life cycle linked to the formation of new planets? Well, we've got
0: to go back to when stars form. Uh, They form, as Karen said, from a contracting cloud. And if a contracting cloud has even a tiny little bit of spin, if it's rotating a bit, then as it contracts, then just like the ballerina who pulls in her arms and spins faster, then the uh, uh, contracting cloud will start to spin faster. And what will happen is that it won't all be able to get down to the size of a star. So when a star forms, because there was this initial spin, or so-called angular momentum, in the cloud, the young star is surrounded by a disk, a spinning disk of dusty gas, uh, which uh, carries away most of the spin energy that was in the star. So it'll look like, um, in a sense, rather like picture of Saturn where it's got an object in the centre and stuff spinning around it Um, and that material the dusty disc eventually agglomerates the bits of dust build up to make rocks and some of this then makes planets and so we believe that um, planets form around stars from the disc around the protostar which couldn't fall in because they were spinning too fast and so if this theory is correct it makes it easy to understand why most stars seem to have planets orbiting them. I mean, it used to be thought that our solar system was very special to have uh, the Earth and the other familiar planets orbiting the Sun. But one of the most exciting advances in astronomy in the last 25 years, especially the last decade, has been realising that most of the stars you see in the sky are orbited by retinues of planets just as the sun is orbited by the familiar planets. And this makes the night sky very interesting, because we have to ask, are any of those planets like the Earth, could to be life on them, etc.? But it's not surprising that these planets should exist if we accept that the stars formed from a diffuse big cloud which contracted and spun up as it contracted and uh, left behind some material which then turned into the planets. Mark, can I pull back um, to
2: what we were talking about a little earlier? What can we see of these stars in the process of dying,
3: these supernovas? What happens when they die? So uh, when they die, the most obvious thing to us on Earth is quite a dramatic optical display in in, in the sky. And this would appear as a, a new star in the sky. Now, if this supernova were in our galaxy, so quite close to us, we would be able to see it, well, obviously we would be able to see it at night, but if it were bright enough, we'd be able to see it during the daytime as well. So it would appear like a new star in the sky. And of course, we understand what these supernovae are, but you could imagine that our ancestors would have had no idea at all what these objects were, these new stars appearing in the sky. And I imagine would have had quite a profound effect on them, given how they would have used the night sky to to navigate and they would have been very familiar with it. There are other ways... As well of uh, detecting supernovae, uh, another interesting way is to using the neutrinos that that core collapse supernovae generate. Now, Carolyn described the collapse of a massive star when the core gets to iron and can't undergo any more nuclear fusion, and when it collapses, part of the process is um, the, when the neutrons are formed, is to generate a very large number of neutrinos. Neutrinos are very weakly interacting particles. That means they don't stop when they go through matter. Or if they do, they only a very small number of them do. Now, remarkably, you can detect neutrinos if you have a very big underground mine and you fill it with water, and you look for the very rare interactions as the neutrinos interact with the water. It doesn't happen, there aren't a lot of them, but you can do it. And in nineteen eighty seven there was a, a nearby supernova, well, nearby cosmologically speaking, And that generated a vast number of neutrinos, of which a very small number, maybe 10, 15, were detected in this neutrino detector. Now, the thing is, these neutrinos are the first signature of the collapse of the iron core. It's a long time before any of the light comes out, well, compared to that many hours or days until the light gets out from the supernova explosion. So the neutrinos act as an early warning system that there's been a core collapse supernova. And so these days, there are all sorts of astronomers around the world who plug into the alerts from these neutrino detectors. And if there is one, they will tell us that a core collapse supernova is coming and that we should go and look for it.
2: Caroline, um, what records do you held of the first observation of supernova?
1: The supernova that will have been observed in historical times will, as Marcus suggested, have to have been visible with the unaided eye in order that they were recorded, and they were recorded because they were of note. This was something that was unexpected in the unchanging heavens. We reckon there is, on average, about one supernova per century per galaxy. But for all that, there are only perhaps about eight recorded observations of supernova over the years. I mean, the the first... Recorded observation, reliable recorded observation of a supernova dates from 1006 CE, which is recorded as being 16 times brighter than the planet Venus. So this is one of the ones that Mark's talking about. It was visible during the daytime for about three weeks and would then fade in brightness and still be observable at night. And then sort of 50 years later, you have an ex- a recurrence of what's called a guest star which was observed by Chinese and Chinese. Japanese and Korean Islamic astronomers. And what is particularly interesting about that one, again, it was visible in the, the daytime and then faded away to be visible at the nighttime for a few years. But it's only later that that was identified with a nebula. So about the 1730s, that was the first association of a nebula. So in other words, a supernova remnant that exploded out of debris from the star. And we call that the crab Nebula is a very classic case of one of these supernova remnants. There were a couple more that were of note in 1572 and 1602, which were observed by Tycho Brahe and uh, Johannes Kepler. But after that, ever since we've had telescopes, I will say we've been a bit shortchanged in these spectacular outbursts. I mean, astronomers would love one of these to go over, we could study them with our modern instrumentation. I think 1987A has been the best-studied supernova, and that's the only one that's been visible with the unaided eye since we've had our powerful instrumentation and telescopes.
2: Mark, what are standard candles?
3: A standard candle is an object that is of great importance to astronomers because it lets us measure how far away objects are. So measuring distances in astronomy is, is really difficult. There's no ruler that we can just get out and measure the distance to a nearby object, a nearby star. In our solar system, we can use the radar, perhaps, to determine how far away planets are. For very nearby stars, we have techniques like parallax, which is where we can observe the apparent motion of stars on the sky as we rotate around the sun on Earth. And from that, we can do a bit of trigonometry to figure out how far away the stars are. But otherwise, distance measurement is is very difficult. Now, standard candles are very important because they are objects of known intrinsic brightness. If I can measure on Earth how bright a standard candle appears to me sitting on the earth then using the inverse square law all the light from this standard candle is emitted over the surface of a sphere as the photons move away from the standard candle then i can work out how far away it is and that is an incredibly useful property in astronomy now there are many types of standard candles but the type that i study are these thermonuclear supernovae these explosions of white dwarf stars Now, the white dwarf star is the object that has this Chandrasekhar mass limit, which tells us the white dwarf cannot be more massive than the Chandrasekhar mass. And when it blows up, it makes all of this nickel 56. But because we know how much mass there was in the beginning, that means pretty much the same amount of nickel 56 is made each time. And that means these thermonuclear supernovae are pretty much the same brightness every time. And they're incredibly bright. They outshine... Entire galaxies, and you can see them billions and billions of light years away. And that means they're an exceptional measure of distance in the universe. So there were pioneering studies in the 1990s trying to find all of these distant, well, some of these distant supernovae and to map out the large scale geometry of the universe. And when they did that, they had a very, very surprising result. And what they discovered was that the universe was expanding, but it was doing so at an ever faster rate. And that was totally unexpected. And that's almost as if there were some, and I use the term kind of crudely and loosely, some anti-gravity effects pushing the universe apart. And so that, these days, that mysterious subject substance is labelled dark energy. And we don't know what it is. And it makes 70% of the universe. And you can use, super- there's many techniques to study it, but these dis- thermonuclear supernovae are a particular direct way of studying the, this, uh, this dark energy that permeates our universe.
2: Martin, when all the stars die, this is about stars dying, yes. what will things look like, uh, or well, be
3: like?
0: Yes, uh, well, to follow up of what Marx said, we do think that the uh, universe, the most likely long-range forecast, is it'll go and expand forever, getting ever colder, ever emptier, and that's because the uh, observations of these distant supernovae tell us about the speed at different distances, and therefore at different times in the past, because the further away we look, the further back we look in the past. And that's the evidence that the expansion is speeding up, not slowing down. And so if we were to come back in, uh, say, 100 billion years, that's 10 times longer than the present age of the universe, more or less, we would find that most stars would have died out. There'd be lots of white dwarfs, the uh, remnants of stars like the sun... Uh, there'd be lots of neutron stars and black holes there'd be some very faint stars because the very small stars weighing about a tenth as much as the sun called m dwarf stars they burn their fuel so slowly they 'd still be around so there 'd be a few dim stars there, and there'd be occasional flashes caused by things like neutron stars merging etc. But the universe would get sort of ever colder and ever emptier, and um, uh, in fact, all that would be left within view would be the remnants of our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, its nearest big neighbour, and a few smaller galaxies around them. All the more distant universe, which astronomers like Mark study, galaxies far away, they would all have uh, expanded their distance from us and in effect disappeared over a sort of horizon. And so we just wouldn't see them at all. They'd be too faint. Rather like things... And inside-out black hole, as it were. But in this case, they move so far away that we can't see them anymore. And so uh, the long-range forecast is a very cold and very empty universe.
2: Carlin, do you want to come on that?
1: I would just like to return just for a minute to something. Martin was telling us about how planets are formed around protostars within these clouds that perhaps were triggered by star formation from supernovae. It's worth actually mentioning the very first planets found around another star were found around a neutron star, were found around a pulsar. And if you stop and think about this, this is incredible. This means that there had to be maybe a pre-existing planetary system around that star that survived this colossal supernova explosion that created the neutron star. And that is quite intriguing. These are fairly small rocky planets, two or three times the mass of the Earth, and quite tight orbits around their star. And you can speculate that maybe they were once giant planets like Jupiter that have had the outer gassy layers blasted off and you're left with the rocky core. Or maybe those those planets were stolen from another star that got too close. Maybe they didn't originate with a neutron star. Or maybe they formed after the supernova explosion, from some of the leftover material. And perhaps if it had, the supernova was caused by accretion from matter from another star. So we have yet to work out really where these exoplanets came from and how they can exist around pulsars.
2: Mark, well, we're towards the end now. What would you most like to know about death of stars that you don't know at the moment?
3: I'm very excited about a new big telescope observatory that's that's being built that will help uncover some of the answers to some of the biggest mysteries in supernova explosions i think it's worth just stepping back a little and making the point that these uh, a lot of science is 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 international particularly in astronomy we depend on international collaborations to do cutting-edge science most of our observatories as scientists are located well, very nice places to go and visit and observe in. The top of dormant volcanoes in the middle of the Pacific or um, mountain ranges in Chile. And in Chile at the moment, there's a new telescope under construction. It's called the Vera Rubin Observatory. And it's named after a, a famous astronomer who found the first good evidence from, for dark matter by examining the rotation curves of, of, of galaxies, how, how galaxies rotate. Now, that the observatory is going to run a big all sky survey well all sky that's visible from chile anyway called the legacy survey of space and time and it is going to observe the night sky for, for 10 years and it will do the entire sky every three days and what that will give us is millions and millions of supernova explosions none of them in our galaxy i'm sure all in other galaxies all very distant i think that will unlock many the mysteries around Dark energy that I talked about, helping us constrain various different models of dark energy. I think it will help us understand how supernovae explode. And I think most exciting of all, it will probably uncover completely new ways to blow stars up. Um, Well,
0: I I agree with Mark, but there's another big telescope being built in Chile, which is the uh, European Extremely Large Telescope. They're not very imaginative in their nomenclature, but this is a telescope being built on the ground which has a mirror 39 metres across. Not one big sheet of glass, but a mosaic of 800 bits of glass. And this uh, will also be able to observe very distant objects, because it can collect lots of light, and this will include looking at galaxies just forming, uh, but also perhaps being able to detect some of the uh, planets orbiting other stars. And we ought to mention, of course, also in space, the James Webb Telescope, which was uh, launched um, about Christmas time last year and is going to start observations, and that's got a a 6.5-metre diameter mirror, but in space it has an advantage, and that's going to be looking in the infrared at very, very distant galaxies where the light owing to the redshift is shifted to infrared. So that's going to tell us again about what the galaxies were like when they were very young, which would gather lots and lots of data, which would clarify all the things that are still mysteries. And that's the way science goes, of course. You settle some problems, but they bring into focus a new set of mysteries.
2: Well, thank you all very much, Martin Rees. Carolyn Crawford and Mark Sullivan, and to our studio engineer, Duncan Hannan. Next week, do not go gentle into that good night. It's the Welsh poet and writer Dylan Thomas. Thanks for listening.
1: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
2: That was terrific. Now then, I think the best way we kick it off is by saying, what did you not say you'd like to have said, starting with you, Carolyn?
1: We've talked about seeing the death of stars from their supernova very massive stars core collapsing producing supernova in these wonderful new generation of telescopes with automatic data processing that will pick up these changes one challenge would be is whether there are stars that reach the end point of their lives and collapse down without producing a supernova and how we might find those without the supernova explosion now theoretically it's possible but the only way you'd find them is by actually seeing stars disappear So rather than stars brighten and appear, you might be looking for stars that disappear from galaxies and possibly that's something else that might come out. That It's difficult to quantify because we don't know how common that is or whether it even occurs, but it's a possibility that is one of these new results that might come up from the studies that Mark is talking about.
0: No, I I agree with that. That would be very exciting.
2: Martin, who would you credit uh, most for the major advances in, uh, in what you've been talking about?
0: Well, I think uh, it depends how far back we go. Um, I think the um, uh, uh, first people who realized that stars were made of the same stuff as the uh, as the Earth were those in the second half of the 19th century who took spectra and showed that there were particular colors that uh, prominent in the light of stars showing that they were made of the same stuff as the Earth and that led to the idea that we could do physics on the stars and that was a, a whole lot of people. Um, but I think the uh, idea that the elements that we were made of were all synthesized in stars uh, the key person was Fred Hoyle who wrote a paper in 1946 with this idea and um, then uh, There was a big paper about 10 years later, in the late 1950s, uh, written by Fred Hoyle along with three other people, uh, Geoffrey and Margaret Burbage, a famous astronomical couple, and Willie Fowler, who was a nuclear scientist in California. And they wrote this very long paper codifying all the nuclear processes which would occur at different stages in the heavy stars which caroline mentioned which have this sort of onion skin structure with the hotter inner layers processed up the periodic table and this classic paper written by these four people it's often called bbfh after the four authors um this uh really set the scene and it's been obviously um refined by work in the last uh, 50 or 60 years and um uh I think they deserve the credit for um, this uh, remarkable discovery that we are literally made of the uh, ashes of long-dead stars. And there have been some puzzles because you you want to understand the ratio, why some are common, and some are rare. And um, uh, as Mark mentioned, one of the issues was where gold came from. And it seems that uh, gold comes in a rather exotic way from these uh, neutron stars, uh, in a special phenomenon. Um, But I I would say that uh, Fred Hoyle and his collaborators really had the basic idea. But, of course, testing it has been a uh, collective enterprise and we now have much better theories and we can do computer calculations and all the rest of it.
2: Is it accidental that there are some massive stars and some very small stars?
1: It's to do a lot with the conditions, the initial cloud collapse and how the cloud fragments and how much mass is available. So there are are stars of all kinds of masses, right from ones that are are subsolar right up to about 50 solar masses are quite common. And there may even be stars that are a greater mass than that. But usually it's between about 0.8 solar masses up to, say, 50 solar masses is the range we have for stars.
2: Does does what you're saying suggest that planets will ceaselessly be uh, reformed, reinvented?
0: Well, new stars uh, will form new planets. And so if we look around um, a uh, a star that's younger, it may still have planets around it. But, of course, we can then say two things. We can say, firstly, that um, uh, if planets formed around a big, massive star there'd be not much chance of uh, life evolving, because there wouldn't be enough time before the uh, star around the and exploded. So we would expect that the planets which are most likely to uh, be habitable are those around stars, which are like the Sun, in the sense that they have a lifetime of billions of years, giving as much time as we had here on Earth to evolve from a simple life to the biosphere of which we are a part. But, of course, this is another subject, mm-hmm. but it's one of the most fascinating subjects in astronomy, of course, to to ask uh, whether these planets, which uh, are habitable in the sense that they contain all the basic ingredients of life, um, are actually inhabited by any kind of life. We just don't know, because I'd like to say biology is a much harder subject than physics, and although we can understand the physics of uh, exotic things like neutron stars, um, and uh, gravitational waves and all that, uh, we don't understand how life began. So we don't understand how we got from complex chemistry of a kind that we do observe uh, in interstellar clouds um, to the first um, replicating, metabolising things we call alive. That's one of the big mysteries for the 21st century astronomers to solve.
2: Um, you would say um, something more like nice? Well,
0: uh, I think... Um, if there was more time i'd like to have said a bit more about the history, really, because, uh, um, well, because now uh, because um astronomy yeah. is um i like to say the um oldest science, except perhaps for medicine, and the first that did more good than harm, so it goes back a long time um, but uh, uh, it was um, it wasn't until about two or two fifty years ago that people realized that the uh, uh, stars spangled across the vault of heaven, were really other suns. So they didn't realize how far they were away until they had parallax evidence. And then they realized that if they were that far away, they had to be as bright as the sun. And so they then realized that the stars were other suns. Um, but it wasn't until 1850 that they realized that uh, they were made of the same stuff as we have on the Earth. I did not mention that In the the program, Um, and that was by um, uh, uh, taking spectra of the light through a prism um, and picking out the uh, characteristic light, like yellow from sodium, and things like that, and realizing that uh, the sun and the other stars contain these elements. So I think that that was uh, important, Um, but it was really um, nuclear physics which had to come along um, to understand the stars' long lifetime. And then, of course, Einstein's theory had to come along in order for us to understand the death of stars, um, except
3: for the ones that settle down quietly as white dwarfs. Well, one other thing that we haven't talked about, which I find quite interesting, is what would happen if there were a supernova nearby to the Earth. That has almost certainly happened during the Earth's history. And so if there were a supernova within, say, 20 or 30 light years of the Earth... I'm afraid to say it would have a rather catastrophic effect on, on, on the Earth. So if there were a supernova... Now, we have nothing to fear from the light from the supernova. We have nothing to fear from what we call the ejector of the supernova, which is all the material thrown off. But in the supernova explosion, you can get particles accelerated to very high velocities or very high energy. These are called cosmic rays. And when they hit the Earth, they would interact with the ozone layer in our atmosphere, and they would strip the ozone layer, from, from from the atmosphere of the Earth. And that would allow the UV radiation, the ultraviolet radiation from our sun, to penetrate the atmosphere and um, have a very harmful effect on life on Earth. Mm-hmm. And in fact, although it's not my field, I understand that this nearby effect of a nearby supernova is possibly one of the triggers for mass extinction events that we see in the geological record of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And there's some really interesting work going on, which is trying to correlate these periods of mass extinction with the deposit of particularly long-lived radioactive isotopes in the earth's crust and to see if there's any correlation because what we would expect is the cosmic rays would come first remove the ozone and the effect of the ultraviolet light would be to you know distort the dna and 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 eventually kill things on earth and then the ejector of the supernova would follow and deposit radioactive uh, isotopes and if you could match the two together then you could probably find evidence that there have been nearby supernova explosions which have being responsible for some extinction events on Earth.
0: Um, <laughs> just a footnote to that. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the energy in the form of ordinary photons, ordinary light, that's emitted in the centre of a supernova diffuses it out and takes weeks to escape. Okay? Um, but uh, um, if the star is spinning, then it'll uh, be an oblate spheroid. It'll be, uh, have a minor axis along the spin axis. And so the easy way out is for the radiation not to diffuse through, but to find the shortest escape route, which is along the spin axis. And uh, I mention this because gamma ray bursts are objects I've worked on a lot myself, Um, and these are uh, when uh, a supernova occurs. But because the initial star um, was sort of flattened, there was an easy escape route, and all the energy escapes in in jets along the spin axis. And so instead of it diffusing out over a period of weeks as it does in supernova, it comes out in a few seconds. And these objects called gamma-ray bursts, um, which last a few seconds, um, uh, are the most powerful objects in the universe, in the sense that for those few seconds, they're putting out more power than all the stars we can see in all the galaxies. They're extremely powerful, um, because uh, the energy is coming out in a narrow beam. And... Um, just a few seconds so these are again extreme phenomena which are special
3: kind of supernovae. so let's put in that plug for the interest in uh, gamma ray bursts <laughs> I find, think that's interesting mm. that the field you know, go, can, can have so many different effects on so many different things formation of the elements mm. can affect life on earth you can use it to study yes. dark energy I think it's, yes. uh, they're wonderful
0: it's very cross disciplinary you yes. have to understand yes. all these things and of course if we do discover life elsewhere then uh, we have to learn some biology <laughs>
2: yes, you you,
0: you say that there's,
2: there's you don't say there's bound to be but the nearest damn it there's bound to be life somewhere else well i wouldn't say that it
0: could be it could be unique but because we don't understand the uh, actual process of form the first life darwin told us what happens to get from simple life to complex life, but we, we don't understand. But uh, We don't understand how simple life came
2: about. Came by, yes.
0: But, but um, uh, I think there's hope in two ways. But first, uh, serious people are now thinking about this problem. It used to be put in the sort of too difficult box where people didn't think it was worth thinking about even. But now serious people are working on it. But of course, more important, um, if we could find evidence for life in, in a, a, another a second place, that would make a big difference. There are two things that could happen. Uh, one would be that we can get a, a spectrum of the light from a planet around another star, which tells us what's made up of oxygen, Is there some chlorophyll there, as there would be if it was covered with vegetation or something like that. But also in our solar system, because um, uh, uh, Mars, of course, people are um, uh, g- probing Mars, and there might be some... B- bacteria there but most interesting are the moon moons of Jupiter and Saturn there's Enceladus which is a, a moon of Saturn which has a, a, a ice over an ocean and Europa a moon of Jupiter like that and under those uh, uh, thickness of ice there could be some life and um, uh, and so there are ideas to send robots to actually investigate there Um, because the water and the temperature may be all right so there could be be life there Uh, and the reason that would be so important is that if we could find evidence for life on a moon of Saturn or Jupiter it would have to have originated independently of Earth and so if life originates twice within our single solar system that says it's not a rare fluke and therefore it almost certainly exists in a billion places in the galaxy and that would be a really momentous discovery. Um, uh, I emphasize this rather than Mars, because if we detect evidence for life on Mars, then, then it's certainly possible for life to get from Mars to the Earth, or vice versa, um, on, on meteorites, because, um, because there are some Martian meteorites that have landed on the Earth. So it wouldn't be clinching that it was independent, whereas if we find life so far away that it couldn't plausibly have got from the Earth or vice versa, that would indicate two independent origins in one solar system. And that would mean, therefore, in our galaxy, where there are um, a billion planetary systems, that it must be teeming with life. And that would be a really great discovery.
1: Just to revert back to the death of stars, Mark was talking about stars within our galaxy One of the interesting things to speculate about is which of our nearby stars, hopefully not within 30 light years or so, which of the stars we see in our night sky, some of these giant stars, is the one that's most likely to be supernova next. And we've got several candidates. Um, There are massive stars which are 20, 30 times the mass of our sun. Betelgeuse is one, large red giant. There's a star on the southern side called Etacareno, where they're already in fairly volatile states. They're varying in brightness. They've got clouds of billowing gas and dust around them. They're very active. There's something to do with the end of their lives. The problem is a star that's about to undergo core collapse actually doesn't look very different from one that is several millions of years ahead of it. So when I say these two are good candidates for going supernova soon, it could be next year, it could be 100,000 years time. So it's a bit of a guessing game. Yes, we're likely to have a nearby supernova hopefully not too near but which of these red giants that we see in our night sky is going to be the one? Is anybody's guess at the minute?
2: Mm -hmm. Okay, well thank you all very much indeed.
1: In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.
0: Ping-pong can change the world. Yep, you heard me. Ping-pong. Table tennis. I'm Matthew Side, and in a special mini-series of my BBC Radio 4 show, Sideways, I tell the story of how this small game transformed China's national identity and its international standing. Listen to China's Ping-pong Power, part of the Sideways podcast on BBC Sounds.